Last time on Culture File, we met the writer W. David Marks to hear about his new book, which surveys thinking about the relationships between status and culture, looking at how our search for one comes to shape the other. Key to this idea is that things we find valuable in art are not eternal, but closely governed by social factors, an idea developed by the influential French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu, as Marx explains. Pierre Bourdieu was a French sociologist who made very major contributions to our understanding of the relationship between class position and artistic appreciation. There used to be an idea of aesthetics and beauty as being a thing that was cognitive. This was Immanuel Kant's idea that uh, people contemplated beauty in a detached way in their heads, and this was a universal. And I think what Bourdieu showed is that in order to have those experiences with art and have these kind of detached experiences with avant-garde art and uh, difficult books and difficult music, is that you have to be part of the privileged classes that gets access to the education that allows those artistic experiences. So they're not universal. They require some sort of pre-existing class position and privilege, and that people who are less privileged to that education have very uh, different expectations on art and very different appreciation of art. And so he shows that the appreciation of art in society is stratified, that it's it's not a universal uh, and, and somewhat debunks this old Kantian idea of art and aesthetics. You know, I think that is true. I think that he, by demonstrating that cultural capital and educational capital and, and, and these things are related to artistic appreciation, I think it's made us much more conscious of when we talk about pop culture, mass culture, indie culture, avant-garde culture, of uh, when we're judging things from those perspectives, what is the class and the, the political implications of those judgments? One of the ideas that Bourdieu really pushes forward into our analysis of culture is this idea of habitus. And what I believe he means is something like the unconscious conventions that are inside of our head that guide our movement, our speech, and our perception of the world. And when you grow up in a certain background, so let's say an upper-class background, your perception of the world and your and culture and how you move your body and the foods you eat uh, and the taste you take from those foods, all of those things at an unconscious level are conditioned in a different way than someone who would be uh, grow up in, a, in an impoverished household. And because they're invisible and, and beyond our control, other people can look at these cues and make status judgments about our backgrounds. Uh, It's very difficult to control, and so other people use that as very effective evidence for trying to understand our background and then our current status position. The alternative they can do if they're failing to move up is to move out and form their own new chain of value, which is where subcultures come from. Tell us a little bit about the role of subcultures. In any status group, you know, there are people at the top and there are most people in the middle and there's people at the bottom who are treated very poorly. And for many of them, it makes no sense to stay in that group. And one of the things about living in a liberal capitalist society is that we can move across countries or move cities or 
uh, move to different cultural zones in order to find a group that will support us and accept us as a member. And so alternative status groups are a really important uh, innovation, uh, especially in the last 100 years, and we see them in things like uh, subcultures, but also things like cults uh, or countercultural movements. And they, psychologists have found that your local status, your status within the group that is nearest to you is the most important for your happiness. And the esteem you get from other people in your group uh, is very important. The problem in the long run is that these groups, uh, again, because they're hierarchies of hierarchies, are still low in the hierarchy of society. So in their small teddy boy group, they may be widely respected, but as a teddy boy in uh, you know, London in the 1950s, you were greatly discriminated against and people were denied jobs and other resources. And so this local versus global status is very important. And subcultures are a temporary solution often for people to gain new sources of status. But one of the things that happened is that these subcultures became kind of engines for innovation. High status or higher status individuals outside a subculture see something that they could use that has a status value for people who aren't in the subculture. So this process is probably one of the most fascinating parts of the 20th century. And it is massively influential on the shape of how culture changes. And so if you think about in the 19th century, the 18th century, where rich people really determine the direction of culture and everything trickles down from them, we now live in a world that is much more complicated where marginalized people can create new kinds of culture that then are raised up by celebrities and uh members of the creative class, and then from there go on to influence society. It's never as straightforward as simply top-down anymore, but the important thing is that there is some appeal of these ideas, and it doesn't always have to be the same appeal, but there is some cultural appeal, and that ultimately goes back to uh, the, the status benefits that, that people get out of adopting these new forms of culture. It plays out very interestingly in jazz music, which had been, uh, you know, a, a um, denied subculture and then began to be accepted by the, the class of people you, you're talking about, the sort of creative class of upper middle class. And then that kind of feeds back into the actual aesthetics of what's being created within jazz jazz as it becomes more and more accepted by a wealthy white audience that the musicians themselves keep innovating towards more difficult forms of jazz that alienate those audiences but those innovations are so interesting to a more creative uh white uh, middle class uh, enthusiast and 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 the white hipsters that you start still getting those audiences which pushes them to uh, innovate even further and so the interplay of those audiences and the musicians was incredibly important for pushing jazz forward. At the same time, it's it's obviously a process very fraught with the fact that uh, African Americans at the time were marginalized, and that uh, white consumers were often appropriating these these forms as well. So um, it wasn't necessarily something we should look back and say uh, we need to have this again, but most certainly these cultural forms were being pushed very hard by the artists themselves because in some ways they wanted to continue to alienate their audiences. W. David Marks there, and we'll have the final part of that conversation next time where we'll talk about how the internet crashes culture's relationship with status.